drugs, rape, quality of life, recovery, harm reduction, advocacy, policy, treatment, stigma, drugs uncut, the Scottish Drugs Forum podcast. Hello and welcome to Drugs Uncut, a podcast for informal but informed conversation about all things drug related. Regular listeners of the podcast will be aware that we haven't recorded an episode for some while, so we're delighted to be back today. My name's Kirsten Horsburgh. I'm Director of Operations at Scottish Drugs Forum, and I'm here with my colleague Austin Smith. Hello, Austin. Hello, uh, I'm Austin Smith. I have a folk and new job titles. My job Hello. title is something along the lines of the Policy, Practice and Communications Lead for Scottish Drugs Forum. So we're delighted to be back today with two of our colleagues. We're here with Chris Messenger and Louise Aitken, who will get to properly introduce themselves in a moment. But we're back because there's, I mean, there has been a lot going on over the last while since we recorded an episode, but we thought it would be a really nice way to bring the podcast back to talk about a really specific um, programme of work in the organisation and a really kind of hot topic at the moment, which is all about employability, particularly with a lot of the difficulties that we're seeing in the drug sector workforce at the moment. So an ideal opportunity to raise the profile of one particular project uh, within Scottish Drugs Forum, but also to talk about some of the wider issues. So Austin, you'd had some thoughts on uh, the focus for this episode. Yeah, it was just a Thinking about employment and employability you know, are still regarded as something uh, new in the drugs field or, or something that's uh, tangential to uh, people's recovery or treatment. And I'm I, I just kind of reflecting on that, you know, why, why is that? I suppose part of it is because of the link between having a drug problem and being in poverty. So in communities affected by poverty in Scotland, unemployment's normalised. Um, and uh, you regarded as a usual thing. And so if somebody's got a drug problem and uh, living in a community like that, it's just an expectation, well, that person will be unemployed and they'll be unemployed until they uh, address their substance use issues or whatever issues they have. Um, but, you know, when we go back and you look at the literature in terms of the evidence base, you know, the, the early uh, working methadone way back in the 60s in New York, uh, a lot of those people were working. Uh, they were expected to work because society expected them to work. They didn't have the same uh, welfare system or uh, benefit system that uh, we have in the UK as a safety net. Uh, and, and work was normalised. Uh, people, people had to work and did work. And even more recently, you hear the projects uh, elsewhere, uh, particularly in North America, where people who've got an active drug problem uh, work. Uh, and they, they work in... Uh, all kinds of situations depending on their own personal circumstances but the idea that somebody who has a drug problem cannot work or that somebody certainly somebody who's in treatment cannot work is, is something that's that's local to us uh, and a, a kind of maybe a UK perspective um, and also that allows a kind of stigma to uh, grow uh, you know a stigma maybe as a natural base if you like or a wider base um, but particularly around work where people think that not only people uh, can't work but they shouldn't work and they shouldn't be part of the workforce and people like this you know people who have a drug problem those people cannot uh, work uh, with us whereas uh, it's more normalized for, for for people who've got other issues in their life to, to be in a workplace so it's this is all at the beginning stage how do we work with people who've got a, a develop a substance use problem and people who've had a substance use problem how do we uh, 
include those people within employability programmes and, and within the wider workforce. Yeah, and it's felt like there's been a bit of a theme over the years of um, involving people who use drugs in a lot of different projects within the sector, but generally always as volunteers. And although we're not specifically focusing on this today, but we have um, supported a programme of peer naloxone work across the country through a, a specifically funded project. And what that's really tried to do is challenge this narrative of um, people only being able to volunteer or people, you know, not being able to commit to regular work. Um, it's a real culture shock as well for a lot of areas that, um, you know, we're suggesting that people be paid as sessional workers. So using their own personal uh, living experience, so people who are currently using drugs and trying to get them jobs even as sessional workers within areas because they have such a great reach as well and credibility in communities but we've seen a bit of a, a, a steer towards giving the sessional work to people who maybe had a history of drug use rather than people who were currently using so I think we've still got a long way to go when we look at particular opportunities for people who are still using but you're right I think things are definitely changing there's definitely much more of a focus now on um, trying to get more opportunities for people like having a, having much more of a lived and living experience in the workforce as a whole rather than it just being a bit of an anomaly and maybe having one person for yeah. in the whole of a workplace but actually having real representation from people is so important yeah well, I mean, that's one of the things that's you know, been disappointing about uh, the recovery agenda in Scotland, the way that, that's uh, developed over the last 10 years or 15 year, years has meant there's a lot more volunteering, but the kind of uh, the payment of people and uh, the idea, that it, I think we get stuck with the notion that people were giving something back or whatever in a, in a, in a phrase that's, you know, I feel quite uncomfortable with, but that, that that's the notion, uh, and and that somehow you know employability is part of somebody's rehabilitation. But actually, it's also a way of keeping people in touch with non-drug uh, use using uh, communities, groups, peer groups, and so on. So I'm going to bring in our colleagues now to introduce themselves. Can I also say so we're in a really posh podcast recording studio today regular listeners may realize that our audio quality all of a sounds all of a sudden sounds a bit better but we're all feeling a little bit awkward i <laughs> am <laughs> um, sitting with our mics and our fancy headphones and everything on so it's really nice to be back and you know this will be now that we are back and we've got a proper place to do our recordings, we will be putting out more regular episodes and getting uh, getting back in the swing of things but chris Welcome Thanks. to Drugs Uncut. Thank Would you, you like to much. introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Thanks, Kirsten. Um, yeah, I'm Chris. I'm Programme Manager for Employability and Workplace Qualifications in SDF. Um, I've worked in various roles for the organisation since 2010. Um, I've always been supporting the delivery and development of the Addiction Worker Training Programme in some way. Um, and in my current role, I oversee AWTP, but also our SQA-approved Learning Centre, which develops and delivers work-based qualifications for the for the sector. And it's the learning centre that offers the SVQ element of the um, AWTP programme that we're talking about today. Great. Thank you. Louise. Hi. Hello. I feel a little <laughs> awkward with my big <laughs> microphone and you look my great. headset. Um, hi. Uh, yeah, my name is Louise Aitken and I am a peer research development officer with the SDF 
And part of my role is I work with a group of volunteers who have lived and also live in experience and we carry out loads of different um, service evaluations, surveys and peer research across North Lanarkshire. And you have specific experience of AWTP. Yes, yes I do. Um, I graduated from AWTP in 2015 and it was one of the best experiences of my journey in employability. The AWTP for me was when I applied for it. I had never really, when I first applied for it, I didn't really know exactly what it was. I'd known loads of different people who had went through the AWTP at the SDF and that was the reason why the ACNA thought, right, that's something that I think I would like to do. Um, and I remember applying I'd never really done an application form I'd never really had like I'd had some jobs throughout my drug use which never really ever came to anything I couldn't really commit to anything I was quite unresponsible and I remember going for my interview and Chris was in my interview and I was so nervous. I was, I think it was like, I was one of the first in the morning. I still remember it sitting in the office and Catherine came out and gave me a kind of a list of questions and stuff. And I had had huge gaps in uh, employment. So that was kind of one of the things that put me off. Like, And I also had some uh, criminal convictions and the stigma as well also of, um, being a kind of single mother um, and having all that kind of stuff. But I remember going for the SDF and being so nervous, but then get, making it through to the kind of, they do the, your interview in two different stages and then you get the group kind of part of your interview and then being told that I'd been successful. I think one of the things, like I had never done, I'd never had any qualifications at high school or anything like that. So that was one of the things I felt a bit anxious about Um the kind of studying part, um, I'd always been on benefits and I think just even for me, like basic things, learning how to pay bills and the studying, um, but you get tons of support, you get your peer support. Well, when I've done it, I don't know if it's changed much, I don't think it has, but you would get your peer support, um, you would have a mentor in your placement, you would have your SVQ assessor and... We had like um, SVQ days where you could all kind of chat with each other and kind of see how everybody else was getting on. So you didn't feel that kind of like alone or isolated, you know what I mean, in your kind of um, process. Um, there was tons and tons of support. Yeah, I mean, even just wee simple basic things for me. Like I remember getting on my placement and I used to get regular like supervision and I used to shy away if you answer on the phone so you're just having that no confidence of even to answer a phone because your telephone manner um am i going to say something wrong and i was just supported with wee things like that as well do you know um i had an amazing experience with awtp i met loads of people i managed for the first time in my life to gain a qualification like thinking i'll never be able to do this i'll never be able to do this and actually doing it and achieving something and going on to employment after that, like full-time employment after completing AWTP. And one of the things that I found was the coordinator at the time that was coordinating AWTP, they had also gone through the AWTP. So for me, that inspired me as well. Do you know, it was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And that gives you that bit of hope and um, the inspiration also. And one of my placements when I had completed the AWTP, one of my placements that I was in, it was like in a frontline drug service in Glasgow and they offered me employment. And I had also been in that service as a service user 
and I had known some of the staff from being in there and being at probably one of the worst, lowest points in my life and then going in there to work alongside those people and seeing that the job that they really do. And through that, I kind of got other opportunities. I was in there as a support worker and then I moved on to a criminal justice service as a practitioner and then I kind of went into homelessness and mental health and then an opportunity came up in 2020 for the role that I'm in with the SDF and I thought I'm going to apply for that but I'll never get it <laughs> um, it's just that belief in yourself and I remember Austin was in my interview um, and I God, had my slippers does this feel like an interview again? <laughs> you've got all your previous interviewers here. I know <laughs> and, and I was standing up because it was on um, Zoom the interview and I was standing up and I had my slippers on <laughs> Um and I remember um, being in the interview and some of the peers were also like part of the interview process. And then when I had got the job at SDF, I, I remember when I got the call, I was like screaming down the phone and then burst out crying. I was like, I can't believe it. So for me, it's it's been an amazing journey. Do you know, like some of the opportunities that's come up for me with doing the AWTP, I never ever thought that my life would have transformed the way it has um, just with the opportunities that I've had. We kind of doing a training course that I get tons and tons of support with. Loads of challenges, personal challenges and the, the education stuff, but there was tons of support there, you know, to help. Um, yeah, for me, and the, I think the best bit, bit for me was actually completing that SVQ. And God, I can't believe I've just done that. <laughs> well, we're certainly glad that you took part in the programme, definitely. And thanks for sharing all that experience, because I think it's really helpful for mm -hmm. people to hear about that from, like you say, you'll be inspiring lots of other people that you don't even know about. And we're going to come to Chris in a second just to talk about the actual programme overall itself and, you know, what it's all about and how it operates. But I think you've given a really good flavour of it there. And I think something that struck me when you were talking about your interview experience um, was and still is something you know when people are going for jobs they often are having to hide you know their um, prior drug use or any criminal convictions and I think one of the great things about this program is it really you know that's that's a strength of it that you're able to share a lot yeah. of those things from yeah. from the past so um, but there's loads of other things I want to pick up on with, with you, but I'm going to go over to Chris um, and just ask Chris if you would mind just giving us that bit of sort of overview about the programme itself and touching on anything that uh, Louise has just talked about. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, so I guess I should start by saying that um, what we offer is a paid traineeship and um, it's exclusively for people with lived and living experience. Um, the programme offers... Firstly, it offers work experience, and that's in one of our um, networks of partner agencies who offer placements to trainees. But those placements are in a really, you know, as Louise was saying, a, a supportive and inclusive environment. Um, we also offer access to a program of quality assured specialist training, um, which is delivered by our workforce development team and training team in SDF, and a qualification as well. The bit that no one wants to do, but it gives you access to a, to, you know, to, to a great job for life, really. So, um, but the qualification is um, SVQ study, and that's supported by the the SDF Learning Centre, and. All wrapped around that is intensive support and that's support throughout the course, but also then to move into to further employment. And I suppose just a little bit of background might be helpful so you can understand how the projects evolved, I guess. It was um, 
it was set up with nearing 20 years of the program being available. It was set up in Glasgow in 2004. And that was in response to the barriers to employment faced by people with a history of um, drug and alcohol problems. And it was designed to support something we're seeing again just now, but we're seeing this on a much larger scale, um, issues in the recruitment and retention of staff in services. And it was established by a small group of partners who recognized the, that value of lived experience in service delivery, but also the insight that people with experience of treatment and support services had. The flip side of that is that the group really wanted to create meaningful opportunities for people facing employment barriers as well. So nothing tokenistic. So through the program, what we try to do is we try to offer the most realistic experience of employment that we can, but in a highly supportive environment. And it's also in a place where people are encouraged to use their own experience, but it's in conjunction with the training and the vocational learning. And everything is geared towards supporting people to become the very best workers they can be. And, and that's what we see year in, year out. So there's a particular um, there's a particular subject that comes up all the time mm -hmm. when we're talking about recruitment into the sector. And we're going to talk in a minute about some of the changes that the pro programmes made over the years. But one of the previous things that was always a prerequisite for the course was that you had to... Uh, it was this what people describe as the two-year two rule. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you could just explain a bit about where that came from um, and, you know, why why that was in place. And then we can talk about some of the changes that we have made going forward in terms of that as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the two-year rule, has, as you're right, it's always been referred to, um, was two years, we, we were looking for people to be two years free from um, any any drug 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 use, um, and that included substitute prescribing, and also um, two years away from um, any um, what was considered um, problematic alcohol use as well. Um, the only place I'd ever seen that written down was um, in some um, NTA National Treatment Agency guidelines years ago. That's the only place I'd ever seen anything written down around that. Um, but that was always seen as a benchmark by the original steering groups. So that small group of partners I mentioned back in 2004 who set the program up, that was agreed as a, as a good benchmark for people um, to, to come into the program. And I think part of this is because it's a it was originally a recognition of just how challenging it, this, this type of work is. Um, and it was just it was just something that was um, there to as a measure of progress really or as a, as a measure of readiness um, the change that we've recently made is that we're, we're recognizing just how resilient people are and we're looking for people to be read at a stage in their lives where they feel ready for employment really that that's what we're looking for now yeah I think it's a really really positive change going forward I think mm -hmm. the I think the developments that the programmes made over the years, I think, you know, the placement providers were always very keen that there was that specific mm -hmm. period as well for people to have had that two-year period of abstinence. But I think times have changed quite a bit now and we need to move with the times. And certainly um, I think it's very positive that we're moving in this direction. But I just wondered, Louise, from your perspective in terms of your involvement with the programme before and how you see things moving now, how do you feel about the that change to removing the two-year side of things and being open just to assessing people on their readiness for employment and their readiness to work in this sector rather than having any specific uh, arbitrary time scale. Yeah, I think it's a really positive change for um, anyone that because who are we to say, oh, you're, you're not at two years away from any kind of 
problematic drug or alcohol use, so you don't you can't really apply. But as Chris is saying, you know, someone who is, feels ready to go into employability, I think it's a really positive change for the programme for anyone that is thinking that. Oh wait a minute, that's something that I think I I could do or that I would be interested in. I think it's yeah, I think it's a really positive thing. And a lot of people, Chris, that have previously been on the programme or just finishing up the programme have also said to us that they actually felt that because of the nature of the project they actually felt that they needed uh, you know that longer period of time so that's that's been difficult as well because obviously we want to take that into account when we're making these types of changes but also open up to to wider experiences and um, you know make it more inclusive for people but that has been some of the feedback as well and I think We've sort of changed the, not the induction process, but the uh, information sessions in terms of people applying for the project, just to make sure that people are really aware of you know, how intensive the, the programme can be, whilst loads of support, that, like Louise has referred to, but also it is quite intensive. It is intensive, itself. yeah. For, for a lot of people, it can be their first experience of employment or their first experience of employment for a really long time as well. So... Um, you know, that wraparound support is is so important. And you're right, a lot of the feedback that we've had has been around, actually, I don't think I would have been ready for this, uh, you know, a year ago. I think the flip side of it is something that we've talked about as well, is that, you know, I can think back to years of interviewing um, people for trainee positions and thinking, you are so ready. And then at the end of the interview, they said, you know what, I need to tell you that I'm, I'm not actually meeting your two-year criteria. And then it's just, you, you know they're ready, but it, we've almost put someone in a position really where they've had to be dishonest around that mm. to bag an interview to have mm. the opportunity and then it's it's been taken away because of the, the the criteria that's set so it's it's a really welcome change it's been really welcomed by placements as well um you know that's where without the support of placements this program wouldn't be as successful as it is you know you've got that um that daily opportunity to work directly with people accessing services and being an inspiring example to them as well you know that's, that's something as well you were talking about louise you know that that, that sense of um, inspiring someone else to, to, to be where, where, where you are as well. And also, I, mean, I think it's, the programme has to move with the times. Um, but actually, in terms of a, a longer history, you uh, we originally had uh, services uh, supporting people who had a, a drug problem or substance use problem, which were, were peer-led or involved a lot of peers. And actually what happened was there was a, a professionalisation of, of the field where that that lived living experience, even where people had it, they were they were asked or expected not to uh, share that with, with people they were working with, um, because it was regarded as unprofessional, and and it was regarded as professional to get your qualifications and and hold that as your your credibility, if you like, across a counter working working with people, or across a table, whatever way you're working. Um, so so actually, you know, in a way, it's full circle. I, I, my view is that the field's a lot more ready for this actually because the field itself is much more diverse and some the work within the field uh, and some of the roles and some of the peer roles and so on actually make it much more mm-hmm. as, like it was in, as it was in the beginning. I, I mean, it's an interesting development, but actually it's, you know, it's, it's almost come full circle. And in fact, a lot of the feedback that we get from um, placements and service managers in particular who are either taking trainees or employing trainees is that you know, through the lived experience element, folk are coming in and and off, you know, make, making a huge difference to service delivery as a fresh set of eyes and, and, and coming motivated as well. Um, but also it's that sense of fusing that with the training 
and the vocational learning like I said before about becoming the very best worker that someone can be so it's it's fusing it's it's providing um interventions that are grounded in the realities of the life of someone accessing mm. that service but also with the with the professional training wrapped around that as well so we, I always say you know we're making people the full package really and it's interesting the barriers people think they have so actually mm. it's it's not the substance use it's their, their experience of education, experience of school, which for most people has been negative and makes them think, I, I can't learn, I've got some uh, issue or whatever that, that prevents me from, you know, gaining qualifications or whatever. So it's those things that are actually, you know, people, the, the one thing you le- learned at school kind of thing, you know, is, was, that, was that barrier to further learning. Um, so that's, that, a lot of people say that, I know you mentioned that, Louise, and, and I suppose that's your whole sense of yourself, which isn't anything to do with substance use. It's a much even more fundamental thing that's started earlier in your life is your sense of yourself as a learner or as somebody you can input. So I have some specific questions about uh, the project itself. So one of the most frustrating things for me is about funding and probably for yourself managing the project, Chris. So I just wondered if you could explain how this particular project is funded and maybe also mention some of the developments with the funds for the project as well and what we're hoping to achieve going forward. So, yeah, I mean, the great thing about the programme is that it's so successful, but the other part of it, the flip side of that is that it's it's really costly to run. Um, so remembering that everyone who comes onto the course receives a salary and then the support costs on top of that training costs. So each year we're often um, trying to bring in the funding externally to create as many places as we can, um, delivering and then doing that again. Um, over the years, we've been f- funded by a range of well-known and lesser-known trust and grant funders. We've had support from Glasgow City Council every year since 2004 um, in some some way, shape or form. And at the moment, that's through the, um, the Glasgow Communities Fund. We've had funding support from employability partnerships as well as um, other kind of incentivized um, support employment schemes and at the moment we're working with nine alcohol and drug partnerships who fund a set number of places um, in each area. Recently we've um, been in the very fortunate position that government have announced three years worth of funding um, into the programme. So that's 1.4 million over the next three years which for each year enables us to increase the number of places by up to 20 each year. So we are thankfully in a very um, fortunate position to be able to um, not deliver and then look for funding, but to deliver and look to develop more. Um, so yeah, we're hugely enthused by that in SDF. It's the timing of that is very fortunate. We've just closed recruitment for the for the year coming up now. Um, so the program's due to start in May. We've had 158 applications from Amazing. across Scotland. So that's 158 people from 21 local authority areas that have applied for AWTP. So the need is there. That's um, 158 people who feel ready for employment through a traineeship like this um and you know so each year we will continue to 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 offer the sector um a group of people who are who are ready motivated well trained with lived and living experience to work in the field yeah and that's been the the most applications that we've ever received for the program isn't it and Mm -hmm. and probably in part due to the changes of the requirements as well for people to be able to apply which has been a real positive as well but i think also goes to show the potential for this project you know obviously there's 158 people have applied but there's going to be a lot of people also disappointed um, because there won't be the funding to put everybody through the program so um yeah i think 
for me, when there's such difficulties with the workforce at the moment, um, there's so many vacancies, there's issues with retention in terms of staffing, there has to be a better pathway for areas to look at. You know, we've there's so many people who want to work in this sector that have absolutely got the right skills and abilities and that are, you know, keen to come on this type of project. I think there's definitely a disconnection in terms of how we're getting those people into these vacant posts. So we can do a part of it by the numbers of people we're able to put through this prog programme, but we could definitely be filling up a lot more vacancies if there was more investment in getting people through the project. So I think this programme really feeds into the definite need to improve workforce development across Scotland. I don't think the outcomes for AWTP are comparable with many other support and employment programmes that are out there. Um, as a touched on earlier you know this is coming into our 20th year almost um we refine the program each year we listen to people who've gone through the program when we look to make changes each year but we've maintained a 90 percent completion rate so not including the 20 trainees that are on the course at the moment we've had 349 people go through awtp 90 percent have completed and of that 90 percent over 85 percent have then got jobs in the health and social care field we can you can also look at the sustainability rates of the program as well the last tracking exercise that we did showed that it was 97% of people had um, who had completed the program as far back as 2004 had sustained their employment and um, nearly 30% had moved into promoted posts. And obviously we talked about the health and social care qualification as well. It opens up so many different pathways. A lot of people go into work in drug and alcohol treatment and support services, but other people go into work in homelessness and housing support and mental health and community justice. Um, so there's a whole world of, of social care available to people. And, you know, several graduates come back to work with SDF too. Um, and because we're well connected with trainees, we know that a lot of people um, go on to further study. So a lot of people go on to do... Um, a higher level of vocational qualifications um, or in leadership and management because now they're managing services as well. So the, the possibilities are endless, you know. Um, but I do think we're missing a large proportion of people, though, who have lived experience, want to work, but don't necessarily want to work in the field. So I think there's opportunities and hopefully with the, with the funding that we have and the breathing space that we've got to look at taking this tried and tested model and using it in alternative, alternative fields as well. well it's interesting that the investment, the national investment took so long to arrive. And I, I know, I mean, that was all, all, always something that, you know, we would have wanted. But it's interesting because, as you say, it's, it's consistently been successful in terms of those, you know, crude uh, stats of, of outputs, uh, which, of course, are only part of the story. There's a whole human side to that as well. But in that sort of, the way an accountant would look at it, it's a sound investment. But... Um, actually, the government funding's come, come along, or the, the national funding's come along in the face of the workforce development issue and the, the detention of staff and the recruitment of staff within in the field, which is an, an interesting thing where, you know, it's still, that, that workforce stuff is still separate from the recovery stuff, which is separate from the treatment stuff. So there's a lack of that kind of holistic thing where people see all those connections. And I know SDF have worked hard over the years to make sure that the ministers there at the graduation cer ceremony at the end of the programme, and that always goes well. Um, but that the, the the thought process has never really f followed it, and we've not been able to drag people through seeing seeing that whole wide picture and how it all connects up. It's a it's a really complex thing, and you know even when 
Louise is talking about our, our experience in your lives, even for individuals in the programme, it's a hugely complex thing. It's to do with your your own recovery or your own situation uh, and your own personal personal experience and reflecting back to you know th- things in your past, but also about you know sort of suddenly being able to build and think about a future. And, it's, it's a complex process. Can you remember the graduation event, Louise? How yeah. was that for you? Yeah, I mean, the it was I was quite nerve wracking. You know, um, I remember like um, everyone was kind of getting up and getting their certificate and things like that. But my family were there, um, which was dead important. Um, and then you could watch other people in their family and everybody being so proud. And um, but yeah, I remember. Um, they were like asked us to take like a kind of group photo, and I kind of run away at the back because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want anybody to see me. Um, but yeah, I think kind of getting to the end of it, th- there's that kind of the fearful thing, right? This is uh, I've managed to get to the end. I can't believe I've done this and I've achieved this, and you get your qualification. But then it's like, what am I going to do? Because you've got all that support there, and now it's time to go on and kind of venture on into the rest of your journey and kind of. Um, like we, your some people were already in uh, other jobs or getting into other jobs, um, so it's that kind of fearful thing about I've achieved this, but what do I do now? And that's just the kind of start of it. Yeah, I'm dead passionate about the WTP. I think it's a, an absolutely an amazing journey for anyone who is thinking about um, getting back in employability or even getting employability for the first time. Or wondering if, is this for me? Or could I do this? Um, I always, anyone that um, like asked me about it maybe personally or even when peers in work ask about it, I would encourage them to go along and find out now for the information sessions or look on the website. But I think it's a fantastic opportunity for anyone that's really looking, if they think that's what I would like to do. I would like to try and help people or... Do you know if that's what they think? If they think they'd like to do social care or anything like that, then definitely go for it. And now we'll be able to direct them to hear you on the podcast as well to talk about <laughs> your experience. <laughs> but you mentioned someone else when you first spoke about it and it was your first placement and it was somewhere that you'd also accessed while mm. you were using drugs and maybe when you weren't feeling at your yeah. best. And I just wondered how, if you could just talk a wee bit more about how that felt like going back into that type of environment but in a completely different context I remember kind of um because when you do the AWTP they don't tell you like at the very start about you, who where your placement is and for good reason um and I remember kind of secretly hoping I hope I get there um because I had when I was in there as a service user I would see people that um coming in who were doing the AWTP and that was like when I was in there that was one of the things I thought that's something I would really like to do because you see people coming in doing their placement but when I went back in as a trainee it felt a bit strange but obviously I knew some of the staff as being in there and some of them were great they were really supportive um but yeah it did take a wee bit of getting used to I would maybe I would find myself kind of playing pool or supporting the kind of residents in there because I had this um, maybe a bit of imposter syndrome of being in the office with the staff because I didn't feel like a a member of staff and I don't know if that's maybe a kind of lack of self-doubt or confidence or a mixture of that but 
yeah, it took a bit of time to kind of build on that confidence, really, of right, you're a staff member, but I also liked to be out and supporting the residents at the same time. So it, that did take a wee bit of time. But yeah, I just kind of had to find my feet and... Um, I would always encourage more people to get out of the office anyway. <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, and getting better at pool was actually better than sitting in the <laughs> office. I'm terrible at pool. Um, but yeah, no, it did take time to kind of get into the, the role of um, support worker. So I think, you know, there can be, we've talked about some of the challenges that, that, that people face prior to employment and then also on the programme. I think one of the biggest barriers which doesn't necessarily stop after after life on AWTP, I suppose, is around convictions. And I think there's, um, there's a lack of understanding and a readiness by employers to accept people with convictions. I think it's over, it's over 80% of people who come through the AWTP traineeship route have a history of convictions. But yeah, and it's almost like when you get to the end of that, when you've had that nine months to a year worth of support from SDF and then it's like, what's next? And sometimes it can be offers of employment being withdrawn and things like that, you know. Um, I think there's still, we've got a long way to go in some places around, um, just just around understanding that. Um, understanding the PVG, PVG system in Scotland, navigating it well, having understandably some kind of right, like robust systems in place to um you know measure risk but also while having real human conversations with people around their conviction histories and working through the feelings that people have around that that's a big barrier that people have coming onto the program but sometimes i think that um opportunities are taken away because employers aren't understanding yeah. what they need to understand you know yeah. so. we've definitely seen that with some of the peer naloxone work that we've been doing i mean what a headache some of the pvg conversations have been and definitely a need to be working with organizations and with potential people who are coming in to do even sessional work around is there always a need for like a massive full-on PVG in terms of the nature of the role that the person will be doing? So I'm not talking specifically about uh, AWTP, but, you know, when we're looking at other types of roles, especially roles where it's like peer harm reduction interventions, where they're not going to be having any one-to-one -one time doing a client counselling support, that type of intervention. Do we really need full-on PVGs for a lot of that work? Is there something that you know we could look at in terms of making that process a lot easier for people? It has been a massive barrier, I would say, for a lot of organisations that aren't used to doing this type of work with people um, and that fear factor and their processes that are already in place and some quite um, stringent processes, I would say, in terms of what's required of a person. And it can be so off-putting and demoralising for people as well. Um, I mean, you know, I hold our hands up and say that, you know, we um, made some mistakes in terms of the uh, first part of the, the Peer Naloxone project where we were already engaging with people to get them ready for that process for what the work was going to be. But then the services that we were working with not being able to take them on as sessional workers because of what was appearing on PVGs. So really then disappointing for the people that we'd been working with to try and get them ready uh, for that. So we had to end up changing the processes a bit so that 
we weren't going to be doing a lot of work with people until it was secured that they were going to be getting that position. So, yeah, really difficult. And I'm sure Austin's going to jump in and say something on this as well. But once we've talked about that, let's have a moan about benefits <laughs> and <laughs> um, and the sometimes the barriers that are put in the way of people getting employment because of a perceived effect on people's benefits. But Austin, were you going to uh, mention well, I, anything uh, yeah, about well, PVGs? No, it wasn't in the PBG sense. Oh, right, okay. I was thinking unusually it falls to me to say something positive. Oh, but sorry, <laughs> I didn't realise it's turning into you for a moment. <laughs> but no, it was um, no, it was just uh, thinking, uh, reflecting about you know why some of the big uh, employability training providers haven't you know done something uh, like the AWTP, some kind of version of it, and and I suppose that's that stigma thing we're t talking about. A, a fear of working with people whose, you know, backgrounds people don't feel they they understand or have insight or they can't offer support. But I also, I mean, I, I worked 25 years ago or so. I, I left, I finished working in a, an employability, a kind of mainstream employability uh, programme. And in that large organisation, I eventually ran a very small project that worked with people who were long-term unemployed and had another identifiable issue. So the mental health problem or and or they'd a substance use problem or they'd been homeless or whatever. What I, what I remember from that, my reflection in that is that that large uh, provider of employability services, uh, they're, and I, I can understand this, I don't, I don't want to sound as if I'm condemning people, but their, their perception was that people who had a drug problem, specifically a drug as opposed to an alcohol problem, maybe didn't have a lot of employment history, maybe didn't have a lot of qualifications or education, um, would be grateful, uh, I think was probably the word they would use, uh, to have some kind of very low-level job in, you know, a, a, what we call entry employment, entry-level job, a job that most people would get when they left school or maybe left college or university, your very early stages of your employment. Uh, because they didn't have anything on this. They had a blank CV as far as they were concerned. So I, I think what the programme picked up early, just because it, people had more of an insight than that, was that people, there's two things, that people have huge potential, uh, they've got a huge thing to uh, amount to contribute, um, and also people have huge aspiration. So although, you know, we talk about all the barriers, and obviously... The, the, the program's a support program and it's trying to help people overcome barriers. You're always working with people who are motivated, have potential um, and, and aspire. Um, and I, I know that can come and go with people day to day. Uh, Chris, when you're, when you're supporting individuals, people can go through bad times or feel down or whatever. Um, but but that that's the huge asset of the progr program that, you know, it runs consistently all the way through it. So can I talk about the B subject? Yeah, yeah, so, so you can go on with your <laughs> complaining. <laughs> well, it's important to be realistic about this. And I think, um, and, and we also had some issues with this in terms of the sessional work stuff. People um, worried about taking on a sessional role because they thought it might affect their benefits. So, and then workers having a real misunderstanding, so then not able to explain to people that actually you can earn up to a certain amount before it affects any of your benefits. But also, Chris, in terms of the salary um, for AWTP trainees, 
it's you know it is a it is a trainee program so it's like a sort of apprenticeship training program so it's not you know a, a full salary that you would get when you move into your your uh, full-time employment or whatever it is you go on to do um but the salary is also set at a level so that it does enable people to still be on specific benefits as well isn't that the case and um, that it can help in terms of that yeah that's correct and what we do Kirsten, is we we bring in um specialist services around that that can advise folk around um in in work calculations as well yeah um so people aren't, aren't at any kind of disadvantage in taking on employment that's the key thing you don't want people to go actually you know I'm, I'm better off not working so i'm not going to take this um take this opportunity take this chance um for many people though it is you, you for a lot of people they're almost being removing themselves from the perceived uh, I say that with a heavy underline, perceived comfort of the, the welfare system to take a chance on, on a nine month job, nine months, how many people go on a nine month month job, but but almost trusting that through the, the support they're going to get and everything they're going to put into it and the qualification they'll come out with, the experience, then move into full-time employment. It's, it's a very brave thing to do. Um, but yeah, we, we come into criticism sometimes because of the level of salary that we offer. We offer that level of salary so that people can top that up through their benefit um, and that people can take that step into em into employment or to supported employment. Yeah, it's like a, a stepping stone towards yeah. full employment rather than, you know, taking a massive leap and coming away from something that's, you know, maybe been a big part of your life in te terms of the, the welfare system. Yeah. So did you have any thoughts at all on any of that side of things, Louise? Yeah, for myself, when <clears throat> I started AWTP, one of the that was like one of the things I thought about. Am I ready to kind of have the? Because I'd been on benefits like all my life. Um, am I ready to kind of step away from that and go into the kind of world of working and being responsible, where I have to pay bills? Like, um, but yeah, that was. For me, that was a huge decision because it's something that I had never done before. But we also used to have someone that used to come in to the AWTP and chat about benefits and things like that with myself and some of the other peers that I'd done it with. So you always had that kind of reassurance there. When I decided, like, it was when I got the offer and I'd thought about now the kind of coming away from all of that. The kind of benefits for me was that kind of safety kind of crutch. And I made the decision that I'm going to go for this because it was something that I really wanted to do. And I wanted to try and get an employability, get the qualification. Didn't really know how I was going to do it, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, good stuff. And I think we definitely need, can't underestimate how much support and knowledge people need around that system as well. Mm -hmm. Because it is a complex system, <laughs> system. I certainly don't have my head around it. Um, but you know, it's great that that support is provided and the expert advisors in terms of um, you know supporting people to make sure that that isn't an area that would really put them off. You know, being part of the program as well. Obviously, there's the straightforward money element of that, but there's you're right, Louise. For a lot of people, there's a kind of psychological element of that. It's a world you're familiar, you feel reasonably safe in, and you're stepping into something that you're not familiar with. It's it's daunting for people. Chris, in terms of the types of roles that people move into once they've done AWCP, so this has been a um, an area that we've been looking at. So the Scottish Government has a workforce expert delivery group, and I'm on one of the subgroups, which is looking at um, supporting 
or, or I guess key principles for people with lived and living experience in employment in the workforce. And one of the things that's looked at is the types of roles that are available for people. And, you know, we've, we've sort of managed, uh, Austin's been involved in this as well, in terms of highlighting what types of roles there are, like um, a role where you are expected to sort of share your peer status because it's a specific role in terms of like maybe like a peer harm reduction role, like the naloxone work or um, injecting equipment provision uh, stuff. So, and then there's roles where that are specifically advertised looking for people with their own lived experience. And then there's other roles that are for anyone that people with lived experience should be actively still encouraged to apply for. But I just wondered in terms of um, what you see mostly when people are moving into employment, what types of roles are available to them? Do you know what, Kirsten? I think anything and everything. I think it's hard to quantify on the one hand um you know the, the kind of roots the roots that people go into but at the same time i am confident our, our trainees are moving into the jobs that are available for for anyone and everyone so our trainees are, are almost fighting for positions with people who've been in in the field for an awfully long time and who are moving and changing jobs um people who are recently qualified and out of college and university as well um yeah, our, our trainees are going into any and every job. Some trainees go into peer roles, some trainees go into support worker roles, practitioner roles, and then move on to developing their careers as well. As I mentioned earlier on, you know, whether it's um, more senior positions and then doing their SVQ level three because they achieve the level two with us, then moving on to do the care leadership and management award because it's a requirement of their registration uh, to do that as a registered manager of services, you know. So um, our, our trainees are, are going into a whole wide range of, of roles um, um, in the drug and alcohol support sector, but also within the wider social care field as well. And what we also see is some other pathways for actually even coming into AWCP in the first place, which is sometimes through um, volunteering. And we have a peer research programme at SDF as well. And quite often we'll see that people have came into SDF as a volunteer and supported a lot of really good work uh, through peer research. And then you know, an opportunity or, or they felt that they've gained some confidence in order to be able to apply into AWTP. And I think that will also be really nice for people who are volunteering who didn't previously apply because of the two-year thing um, and now maybe see themselves in a position. I don't, did you do any volunteering, Louise? With I didn't. I did do volunteering, but not with SDF. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And through volunteering... That was one of the kind of ways I learned about the WTP and people yeah. that had done that before myself, you know, and obviously being in a service. Um, but yeah, I did do volunteering, which helped with like now they kind of build the confidence and things like that. But for myself, um, working with peers in SDF as a peer researchers, this year, one of the peers that I supported and worked alongside with, they gained employment with the AWTP. So it was like one of the kind of first volunteers that came on board for ad started. So you get that kind That's of nice. like proud moment. You're like, because you see them coming in and they build the confidence and self-esteem and they do loads of training with SDF and they'll go and do the peer research and that and then they kind of go for the AWTP. 
Yeah. And I think that's where there's still huge value in volunteering opportunities. And I think sometimes the conversation can go the other way where it looks like we're saying, oh, well, there shouldn't be any volunteering opportunities. It should all be paid work. But actually, you know, for, for a lot of people, like exactly how you've described, it's that confidence building process as well. And sometimes people don't feel ready for a paid position. And that's some of the feedback that we've had as well. But where where could sometimes see that negatively is where services are uh, utilising volunteers where where they're expecting them to do an awful lot of work um, that should absolutely be be paid positions. So mm-hmm. there's a balance for sure. Oh no, absolutely. And I mean, and, I mean, there'll always be where do you draw the line? Draw the line with that um, and because there are some people who are comfortable with vol- volunteering because they know if they wake up one day and they don't want to do it, that that's not a problem. But yeah, and I and I think that comes from that model. I'm sorry to go back to this, but it comes from that model of. People want to give something back, whatever that means. Um, and for some people, that's a real sort of live issue for them. But at the same time, the question is, you know, is that become exploitative from organisations? That has to be sort of monitored and thought through. So we've covered loads and I think it's been really useful. I guess all that remains to cover, although we could talk about the subject, I guess, for, for hours more, but I'm sure uh, we'll save that for another episode. Um is about the future for AWCP, Chris, and obviously with the additional resource that we've got going forward for the project and the expansion. So anything you want to mention about what's next? Sure. Um, so I guess the, the immediate future is more places and a lot more places um, thanks to the national funding. Um, thanks to that, we're going to have the largest group of trainees from the largest geographical spread that we've had. I mentioned earlier on, you know, we started the program with a small group in Glasgow. And then in 2013, we expanded um, to the east of Scotland and other parts of the west of the country. Um, and uh, and then, then we also went to the north of Scotland um, and, and the south of Scotland as well. So yeah, so, so we've got a really good, a really good geographical spread at the moment. But what we need to do next is um, to deliver that well and to maintain our outcomes and to maintain the quality of what we deliver. But with um, more security of funding, um, I suppose, gives us more of a platform to grow. So in my mind, to to firmly establish those regions would, would be great. And, and, you know, really to look at the development of alternative um, entry and employment pathways. Um, I mentioned earlier on about us having a tried and tested model and picking that up and putting it, I guess, in um, new geographies, but also um, new sector specific um, contexts and areas as well. I think SDF have got a role to, to, to play with, with that as well and other sectors and industries where this model of traineeship could work really well. So, um, yeah, I think the, the future's bright, definitely, for the yeah. programme. So. Really looking forward to bringing on and meeting all the new yes. trainees as well and uh, being able to expand that a lot more. I think it's so positive. Um, just before I pass to Austin, just wondered if there's anything else you had Louise that you wanted to mention I mean no I could like you said I could go on speaking about it for for hours but no I think it's just dead exciting about all the new funding and the good luck we're getting through the 158 applications (laughs) 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 Um, and I really look forward to like kind of meeting some of the new um, trainees and that and stuff that come on uh, your program but yeah thanks for having me it's been lovely to be here and have a chat Thanks, Louise. And if you are one of the new trainees <laughs> that is going to be coming onto the project this year, you won't know yet, I guess, because uh, you will not have had your interview um, by the time uh, this this episode comes out. Um, 
but yeah, we really, really look forward to welcome, welcoming you to SDF. But over to Austin. It's left to me to um, thank uh, our guests today, Louise and Chris, for sharing their experience and their insight. It's really helpful. Thank you very much for doing that. And to say goodbye uh, with the promise that we have planned, uh, we have a programme of podcasts where we are planning and we promise to do these more regularly uh, now that we've got a fancy studio to do them in. Thank you very much. And yes, if you have enjoyed today's episode, please do subscribe to our podcast through whatever channel you listen to it on. And we look forward to seeing you next time. And thank you so much to Louise, Chris and Austin. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you.